Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being in the midst of your creation on the Sabbath day. Thank you for drawing our minds to the beautiful things that you've made. And as we pause in your presence, we are reminded that the crowning act of creation is the human body. We pray that you'd help us better understand how to care for that body, the privilege we have of being involved in health ministry, each one of us, and that you'd guide in our time together that it would truly be practical and make a difference in each of our lives. We can't do that in and of ourselves, but we know you're fully able to give us that experience. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever received one? I'm speaking about a radical greeting. A radical greeting. Now you might say, well, what is a radical greeting? Let me have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, and I want to give you an example of a radical greeting. Of course, the Judges uh, is quite a radical book. It's uh, not one of the high points in the history of God's people, but there are fascinating insights into the Lord and his character that we get from the book of Judges. And so I'm going with you to Judges chapter 6. Judges 6 and the familiar story of Gideon. Judges 6, because we're looking here at an example of a radical greeting. Judges 6, verse 12. Before we go to verse 12, let's remind ourselves of the context to fully appreciate how radical this greeting is. It says in verse 11 of Judges 6, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And then in verse 12, it says, The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and says to him what? The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. So where do we find Gideon in this story? He's hiding. That's right, he's hiding in the winepress. And... Uh, Actually, this is not the place you would typically find a hero, is it? Hiding? And so this greeting that he receives from the angel of the Lord is a radical greeting. It's a greeting that you would not expect were you in the situation that Gideon is in. With that percolating in your minds, I want you to look at another radical greeting. And this time we're going to go to the New Testament and to the writings of Peter. And specifically we want to observe whether there might be a radical greeting that applies to each one of us today. I'm turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm looking to see if there's a radical greeting that applies to you and me this afternoon as we study. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning with the ninth verse. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The question is, is this a radical greeting? What do you think? I mean, stop for a moment. And if I were to walk up to you and say, how is the priest doing today? How many of you would turn around and look and see if I was speaking to someone behind you? I mean, at least in the circles that I'm in, it's not a normal greeting to call someone a priest. In fact, for some of you, using the word priest may bring up imagery in your mind that is not all that endearing. Priest. God calls you a priest. Let me ask you a question. If God calls you a priest, wouldn't it be helpful to know what that calling entails? Right? I mean, we were talking this morning about one of these great needs that every one of us has, and it's a great need as a Christian, we want to know what God's will is for our lives, right? Now, maybe I should have billed that, because I know it's hard to draw people from uh, discussions about relationships, as important as those are, especially in the last days. We looked at that in Malachi 4, those of you who were with us this morning. But I want to suggest to you that this call of the priesthood is vital to us understanding our end-time role as believers. We can't fully probe this subject today because really these thoughts about Jesus' work and yours we'll look at in somewhat short order. We'll look at some key scriptural passages, some insights from the pen of inspiration from Ellen White, and then we're actually going to make this a more open-ended workshop. And that is we're going to have a roving mic and we're going to actually interact on some of these topics because my real interest is that we're talking about issues that are of concern to you today, okay? And if you're talking about subjects that I don't know the answers to, we have a group here for a workshop where we can dialogue together. Some very practical things I believe the Lord wants to do in our midst. So let's talk about this job description of a priest. If you were to put it very simply, what was the purpose of the Old Testament priesthood? Mediator, intercessor. And uh, you're talking about themes that ultimately become very clear in the book of Hebrews. What does the book of Hebrews basically tell us the purpose of the priesthood was? Offer gifts and sacrifices, that's exactly right. But what's the big picture? Who keeps being brought into the picture in the book of Hebrews in connection with the Old Testament. That's right, Jesus. So the ultimate purpose of the priesthood was to reveal Jesus. And so as you read through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is greater than the high priest. Jesus is greater than the earthly priesthood. The priesthood pointed to Jesus. But what was it in the Old Testament priesthood that pointed to Jesus? What elements? And you've been talking about some of them. Intercession and ministry, being a go-between. Well, yes. Things that we would put under the umbrella of spiritual ministry. But were the priests in the Old Testament involved with anything else in addition to what we would call typically spiritual ministry? What do you think? Yes, they were involved in teaching and in healing. That's exactly right. Preaching, teaching, and healing were all part of the priestly ministries. Today, if you got up this morning, well, let's not say this morning, let's say you've been getting up every morning for the last 
six months, and this rash on your arm is looking worse and worse, and it's itching more, and in fact, it's starting to bleed. Where would you likely go today if you had a worsening skin condition? Yes, you'd likely go to the dermatologist, I hear a number of you saying. But in Jesus' day, and in the Old Testament administration, where would you go if you had a skin condition? You'd go to the priest. So there was not a medical profession, but the priest was prophet. That was one of the roles that the priesthood was given. Many of the prophets were priests, not all of them. There was the spoken word. There was practical ministry. There was healing ministry. There was teaching. We're talking about Jesus' work. The priesthood gives us insights into the work of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew. We're first going to go to Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew 4, we are given a glimpse a summary of Jesus' ministry from Matthew, a Jew. If you want to see a physician's perspective on Jesus' ministry, you can read Luke. Matthew, not, not that he was the only uh, Jew who was writing the New Testament, of course, but he has this perspective, especially of how Jesus was coming as the fulfillment of prophecy. So look at, Ma at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, as Matthew gives us a summary of the Savior's work. Matthew 4, 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee doing what? Teaching in their synagogues and doing what else? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and doing what else? Healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Now, do you think it would be simple enough just to read Matthew 4.23 and get the point? I mean, is it pretty clear that when Jesus' ministry is being summarized, it has these three elements to it, at least in Matthew's inspired rendition? Pretty straightforward, right? But if you read into Matthew 9, the same summary statement is given later in Jesus' ministry. It seemed it was important enough for God to reemphasize this. And we could, we're not going to go through all the scriptures, but I'll give you enough tags that you can trace through this. Every time then, not only when Jesus was ministering, but when he commissions his disciples, first the 12, then the 70, and then the Great Commission, what three elements are present? Teaching, preaching, why are you saying that with such confidence? Turn to Matthew 28. I want you to find where in the Great Commission it speaks of healing. Matthew 28. And I see some of you realize that as a teacher I like to ask trick questions. I see those glimmers of recognition. Because if you study Matthew 28, indeed you will not find any mention of healing in that rendition of the Great Commission. But if you turn to Mark 16, you'll indeed find that healing was part of the Great Commission that Jesus gave. In fact, the two different accounts, they're, they're different times in Jesus' post-resurrection experiences, Mark 16 and Matthew 28. It suggests to us that Jesus was repeatedly, repeatedly giving this Great Commission. And Ellen White, when she writes about it in Desire of Ages, she says that great commission applies to all believers to the end of time. So we are being included in this priestly commissioning, not only as Peter, 
writes about it, as John wrote about it in the book of Revelation, as we see it portrayed in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. With that background, let me tell you that I have a special affinity for prescriptions. Is that any surprise as a physician that I would be somewhat partial to prescriptions? No, I mean, that's what we do. We write prescriptions many times. And I want to give you a prescription that's a very important prescription. One of the things that physicians most fear is making a fatal mistake. And by the way, as we're speaking about the Great Commission, Ellen White tells us that it's a fatal mistake to think that the Great Commission is just applying to the ministry. She's speaking about it, how it applies to all of us as the body of Christ. But here is something else that relates to fatal mistakes in the church. If someone has just suddenly fallen to the ground and you rush up to them, uh, you first perhaps check to see if they're breathing. Isn't that what we're trained to do? You know, the ABCs, some of you sound, you know, airway, breathing, circulation. And uh, so the person is not breathing. Uh, how many of you, even if you don't have a medical training, medical background, how many of you think this would probably be a, a bad situation? Okay, yeah, stupid question, right? Okay, so someone's not breathing. What do you want to help the person do if they're not breathing? Yes, you want to help them breathe. Yes, yeah, some of this is very basic. You're, but we're going to get into more advanced material here in a few minutes. So I'm going now to something that's a prescription for the breath of life. When would you want something to have the breath of life? When would you be concerned about getting the breath of life? Simple question. If you're not breathing, that's right. So if I told you, you know, we're going to have a special meeting at 5 o'clock, and we're going, to, we're, going to put the, we're going to put the physical breath of life into people. Now, most of you would say, well, physical breath of life? I mean, I'm breathing. I don't need to go to that meeting. You know, that's one thing I can skip. I'm reading now from sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 267. And uh, she's going to tell us how to bring the breath of life into our churches. So some of you don't need to listen, because you say, I'm, already, I'm from a great local church. It's a vibrant church. Um, I knew I came to the wrong seminar. Let me read, because she felt it was a big issue in her day, and I believe it's probably a bigger issue in our day today. I'm reading, like I said, from sixth volume of the Testimonies. This is page 267. 6267. Get the young men and women in the churches to work. Get the young men and women in the churches to work. This is GYC, isn't it? This is the GYC message, and it's speaking to those in leadership. Listen carefully, though. When she speaks about getting them to work, here's what she says next. Combine medical missionary work with the proclamation of the third angel's message. So it's not just a preaching and teaching ministry that the young men and young women are being called to. By the way, there's plenty of other statements that if you don't feel young anymore, it includes you in this medical call to medical evangelism. 
But then she says, giving some specific instructions about how to combine medical missionary work with the work of the third angel's message. She says, make regular organized efforts to lift the church members out of the dead level in which they've been for years. So this is obviously something antiquated because there's no dead church members in Adventism today. Is that true? Make what kind of efforts? Regular, organized efforts. What does that imply? What does regular, organized effort imply? Continuous. What else does it imply? Structured. A plan, right? So it's not just something, okay, we heard about it, uh, and now if it doesn't happen, it's not our fault. I gave the, a, a statement to the pastor, and now the ball's in his court. Or I told the head elder, make regular, organized efforts to lift the church members out of the dead level in which they've been for years. Now listen very carefully to the next sentence. She says, send out into the churches workers who will live the principles of health reform. Send out into the churches workers who will do what? Live the principles of health reform. Now, none of us would probably ever want to say that we've arrived in living any aspect of the Christian life. And I surely would not have said that some four or five years into my experience as a Seventh-day Adventist. But when I graduated from medical school, I came into the Adventist church as a young adult. I was the product of secular college campus evangelism, so I appreciate all of those of you who are involved in reaching out to college students, because if it weren't for a, uh, an Adventist minister who was willing to fail in evangelism, I would not be here today. And let me tell you why I say that. Um, this fellow, his name was uh, Robert McPherson in Minnesota, had a vision to bring the Adventist message to secular college campuses. And everywhere he went, he failed. Really. This is, this is a story that was told me years later by his son. Some of you may know his son, Steve McPherson. I think he's still the conference president in Idaho. Everywhere he went, he failed. Either they, he couldn't get permission to hold meetings, or he'd start the meetings and they'd close them down, or no one would come. I don't know all the details, but everywhere he failed. How many of you, if you sensed the Lord was calling you to a ministry, and it seemed like every time they said, well, how's your ministry going? You said, well, um, you know, no one came to the meetings, uh, but, you know, I think the Lord's really calling me to do this. So, you know, sooner or later, someone's going to pull you off to the side and say, you know, brother, sister, you know, don't you think if the Lord's really calling you, don't you think he'd be blessing your ministry? You see? Don't, don't you think you'd be seeing more fruit from your labors? So I'm sure he heard this. I mean, there's a pastor there, and I, he may have even got it in the workers' meetings. You know, what are you doing? It's crazy. I, it doesn't work. But he finally got permission. Actually, he didn't get permission right off. He decided he was going to bring the Adventist message to the small college I was attending, Carleton College, in Northfield, Minnesota. And uh, he and his son Steve went there. Steve was a pastor at that time as well. And when they walked in to Carleton College, and on the 
billboards and all, when they went into the administrative offices, was also a student union, they were seeing things like the Communism Club and um, the Druid Society and the Marxism Interest Group. Are you getting the picture? There was absolutely no evidence of any Christian influence on that campus. So what do you think they did? You think they turned around and left? They said, no, this place needs the Adventist message more than anywhere else. And they actually got permission to hold the meetings there, and I won't tell you the whole story, but the Lord providentially got me to meetings that I would have never showed up in and uh, introduced me to the Jesus of the Bible. And uh, like you heard Wes share this morning, as I was an agnostic at the time, but to see Bible prophecy and... Uh, these chains of scriptural truth that Seventh-day Adventists have emphasized was powerful in my life and led me to look seriously at the Bible and then get to know the author of the Bible. So from that background, I realized my lack, and I shared with you this morning that I was not particularly excited about the spirit of prophecy, wanting nothing to do with it as a young Seventh-day Adventist. I know some of you think it's a shame the pastor would even baptize me, uh, knowing I told him I wanted nothing to do with Ellen White, and he baptized me anyway. Uh, but I think that was a providence as well, whether he made the right decision or not. I think in God's wisdom, he got me in the place I needed to be. And then later on, as I started reading that counsel, the Lord started to show me something amazing. And the amazing thing in both the Bible and the spirit of prophecy is that God is demonstrating his great love for you individually. You see? If you went to a doctor and you had, uh, let's say you were having pain for many days, abdominal pain, you'd been putting off seeing the doctor. Many of you don't like doctors, and maybe it's partly our own fault. And uh, you finally come in. You see the doctor. Maybe you even see me. Uh, at Weimar, we don't do a lot of uh, advanced diagnostics. We're usually treating people with natural and lifestyle therapies after they've been diagnosed, because they're coming from a great distance. We encourage them to be diagnosed first. But some of them do come with diagnostic challenges. But let's say you come to Weimar, and we do an exam, and maybe we send you down uh, to Auburn, nearby community, where they have an ultrasound, or maybe some other diagnostic studies, and I break the news to you, that you have cancer. And I tell you, this type of cancer, you know, the good news is it looks like from, you know, we do all kinds of staging and testing to evaluate the extent of the cancer. We say, the good news is it looks like this cancer is surgically curable. Now, it might be surprising to you because you say, well, you're supposed to be doing natural remedies, Dr. DeRose. But think about it for a minute. Where was the first surgery done on this earth? Yeah, it was done in the Garden of Eden. So uh, you might say that's taking a stretch, but really, both the spirit, of pro the spirit of prophecy endorses surgery as one of God's approved healing methods. So anyway, I recommend surgery to you, and then you ask me a question. And it's a question I already mentioned earlier today. You say, Dr. DeRose, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, just tell me. I, I hear what you're saying, I should have surgery, but is this a salvation issue? And I say, well... You know, I'm a physician. As far as your body, I mean, yes, this is a salvation issue. It's life or death. I mean, unless the Lord does something miraculous, you say, no, no. No, I'm asking, is this a salvation issue? Like, if, if I don't have the surgery, am I going to be lost forever? 
Is that the issue that's going on here? No, that, that's not the issue. But here's the point. God's trying to bless you. God's trying to give you a blessing. And what are you asking? It's like the illustration some of us heard in the early morning meeting. Remember about the chariot driver? Some of you were here. And the question is, how close do you want to get to the edge of the cliff? I mean, some people say it's exciting to be living on the edge. But I see there's a God that loves us enough who's trying to keep us away from the edge. And so in his love, he points out to us the best way to live for our churches, for us individually, and we're going around saying, well, it's not a salvation issue. You know, we shouldn't do, teach this in the church. It's divisive, you see? We shouldn't talk about health because it divides churches. Have churches been divided by over health? Have they? Most definitely. I mean, having pastored and having sat with pastors in meetings, um, I, have, I could tell you stories about churches that have been divided over the health message. Can I tell you what my conviction is? Why this happens? Why it happens is because we're not, as a people, giving sound, balanced, spiritually focused, Christ-centered health teaching globally throughout our church. And nobody's got to read very far in the spirit of prophecy to know this is one of the things we were called to as a people. So if it's not happening from the pulpit, and we're not involved in health ministry at our local church level, well then who's going to fill the gap? It's often someone. They're reading the council, but they're not necessarily the most balanced person in the world. They may not have any medical training, and they may actually have access to the internet. Amazing, isn't it, in this day and age? And they just went on the internet, and they found out that if you are a total vegetarian, if you're bald, you'll grow a full head of hair. And so immediately you know that I have no credibility. By the way, there is no such connection in the medical research literature that I'm aware of. And uh, having experimented with this, not to grow my hair, but for many years, I can tell you it's not made any difference. But the point I'm making is, is it true that the vegetarian diet is the optimal diet? Yes, you don't have to go further than the first chapter of Genesis for it. And yet, what happens? Someone takes something that's true, and they start pulling in all this other stuff that goes along with it. And why does that happen? Because in many churches, maybe it's not in yours, maybe because you're all sitting here, you're all active involved in health ministry. And your churches are involved in health ministry. That's tremendous. But in many churches, it's not happening. So you get some people on the fringe that say, we've got to start doing the health message. You see? The Holy Spirit is convicting me of this. It's in the Bible, it's in the spirit of prophecy, and I'm going to start preaching health. And many times that health preaching they do is divisive. And they start judging people and saying, you know, you can't be in the, in the elite group in our church if you're doing this. And, and then they, you know, go to the church board and they say, we've either got to do this at our potlucks or, you know, we're in an abomination. We looked at Elijah's ministry this morning, and I want to tell you something that I think is very important to look at. Who in the New Testament was especially inspired. There could be more than one answer, but who in the New Testament was especially inspired by the ministry of Elijah? Can you think of anyone? 
Now, some of you are saying John the Baptist. I'm sure John the Baptist was, uh, was inspired by that. Can you think of anyone else? Who in the New Testament? Elisha? Okay. Let me tell you. I'm in Luke 9. Luke 9, beginning with verse 51. Jesus has set his face steadfastly to head to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 52 of Luke 9, Luke, the physician writing, he says, messengers are sent before Jesus. They go to the Samaritans, and they ask the Samaritans to accommodate Jesus on his travels. And in verse 53, it says they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. This is very interesting, isn't it? Think about it. Did Jesus care about Samaritans? Yes, he loved them just as much as Jews. He loves everyone, right? And yet Jesus was on a mission. Now, I've actually heard of Adventist ministers and Adventist lay people being accused of not showing proper deference to people because their face was set on something else. Is that possible? Could you actually walk by someone and not greet them, even if you knew them? Is that possible? Yes, your mind could be on something else. And uh, if you're involved in evangelism, your eye is especially looking out for those who are visiting the meetings, right? And your, your first priority is not to visit with all your friends in the church. Jesus is focused here. We talked about focus earlier today. He's focused on ministry. He's focused on his ministry of going to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans don't accommodate him. But now, now we have two of Jesus' disciples who are inspired by the ministry of Elijah. They're inspired, James and John. And what do they do? They quote the Old Testament. And they say, Jesus, don't, what do you think? Should we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elias or Elijah did? Were they inspired by the example of Elijah? Now we laugh, we laugh, because there is a certain humor in it, but really when we think about it, it's tragic, isn't it? And we're speaking in this seminar about the need to stand, right? But do you notice, as we were looking at the early church today and the fact that they were disciples, Jesus always sent the disciples out two by two. The disciples set up churches wherever they were at. If you think you are being called like Elijah, to go before the general conference president and speak a stern message of rebuke, you better be very careful that it's the Holy Spirit that's prompting you. Okay? It's the same with your local church. Let me go back now to the statement in six testimonies because I'm going to tie this in with my background because she next says this. Let those be sent, you heard this, who can see the necessity of self-denial and appetite, or there'll be a snare to the church. Send out workers who will live the principles of health reform. 
So I didn't come into the Adventist church. I didn't go through medical school with a desire to be an example to anyone else. But the Lord was working in my life, and uh, I was making changes in my life, and he led me ultimately to a small church. And in that small church, after a very short time, the folks knew I was a physician there. They happened to know because the first time I visited that church, uh, the few days before, one of the church members had been in the medical clinic there at Kettering Hospital where I was doing my internal res medicine residency. So I'm a, a resident, actually an intern, first year of internal medicine at Kettering. And this uh, church, they know I'm a physician. After a few weeks, one of the ladies comes up to me and she says, Dr. DeRose, we've been watching you eat and we need you to give a seminar at our church on healthful eating. Well, I thought the Lord had already given me some insights and to tact and how to work with a church. And I said, Sister, I would be happy to do that, but I couldn't do that unless the whole church wanted a program like this. And in fact, if it was going to be a nutrition seminar, I would not do it unless there were ladies who would be willing to cook the kind of foods I'd be talking about because I'm not a cook. So I was off the hook, you see? So just being tactful and you know, having some insight, I was. I was off the hook for at least 10 minutes because then the pastor comes to me with three ladies. And the pastor says, we really need this seminar in our church, and here are these three ladies who are willing to do the cooking. So what was I supposed to say? Okay, sign me up. You know, sometimes, though, you know, we're just not thinking straight. Does that ever happen to you? I'm an intern. Some of you have medical background. You realize what that entails. And I'm sitting there. I've never given a health lecture at that point in my life. You started to put the pieces together, and I'm just busy all the time in the hospital. And I say, this is crazy. I can't do a health seminar. I've got to call the pastor and say, this just can't happen. I mean, there's no way. What am I going to talk about? This was before, you know, we had all these DVD-based health education programs. It was before there even was such a thing as DVD. Some of you sized that up looking at me. Why do you always laugh when I talk about my age? Anyway, so I, uh, I get on the phone, and I call the pastor, and I say, Pastor, you know this health seminar we were talking about? He says, yes, we're so excited about it. We got advertisements up through the whole community. It's been in the newspaper. I was stuck. I was stuck. What actually happened was I just started praying. And I said, Lord, how is, how is this going to happen? And the Lord did something miraculous. It has never happened to me before or since that I can remember. Here I am on a cardiology rotation. You know, this was at a time when uh, we had more people having heart attacks than we do today. I mean, relative, you know, age-adjusted data. I mean, people were bad off in the, uh, in the 80s when it came to heart disease, and they're still bad off, don't misunderstand me. But this, you know, a busy service, and something happened on that service. Everybody started getting well, and nobody was admitted to the cardiology service. I had nothing to do. I mean, maybe there's one or two patients, but what was I going to do with all that time? That was my first health seminar, okay? 
And what the interesting thing about it is, I didn't know about this statement, but I'm trying to share with you from my own experience where health ministry starts. Health ministry starts with your own life. Not to be an example to anyone else, but because you realize what a loving Savior you have and that He's so interested in your health that He wants to bless you. So instead of running away and saying, like I told you this morning, what I heard years later in an Adventist center of higher education, the councils on diet and food should never have been written. It's so unbalanced. By the way, some of the most balanced spiritual material on the importance of the health message is in the beginning of councils on diet and foods. It's amazing stuff. Speaking about how the spiritual integration of the health message. But the point is, because of the Lord impressing me through those councils, it changed my own life and blessed my own health. I was much healthier as a result of that. And so I didn't go into health ministry public health ministry, church-based health ministry, because I came to the church and said, you know, I'm ready to do a health seminar. But it came because the Lord was working in my own life. So I want to tell you right now that the most powerful thing you can do to change your church is just live the Christian life. Live the health message. And she's saying here, that one of the most powerful things we can do is to send workers into our churches who will live out the principles of health ministry and health reform. So if you're a young person, you're praying about how God is leading you. What is He calling you to do in ministry? One of the things He's calling you to do is to be diligent in your Christian walk, to be diligent in studying God's principles and putting them into practice in your own life. Are you with me? And God will take that and bless that, whether you do a public health seminar or not. God is going to use that influence. But the statement doesn't end there. Because like I said, she tells us if we don't see the necessity of self-denial and appetite, will be a snare to the church. And then she says, see if the breath of life will not then come into our churches. God is wanting to revitalize our churches. Now, we have the better part of two hours in these combined segments, and right now I want to hear from you, actually. And why I want to hear from you is because we don't just want to talk about concepts, we want to talk about things that meet you right where you're at. And so we have a roving mic. We've got uh, Daniel, is that right? Daniel in back with the mic. And I want to hear from, from you if you've got a question or a reaction about what we're talking about, a short experience. When I say short, I mean, the tolerance here, you know, it's a hot day. So if you start, you know, waxing eloquent about, you know, how long you were when you were born or something, you know, we're going to have to try to wrap it up quickly. But I see some uh, uh, hands up throughout the audience. Share with, with us what's on your mind, sister. What is your um, opinion um, professionally, because you are a physician, Bible and um, our bodies as far as vaccines and if um, what you have to say about vaccines? Okay, so the question at hand is we're saying, look it, if we're going to be involved in health ministry, we need to be able to answer questions that people have, right? We need to be able to minister to people where they're at. And a lot of people today are wondering about vaccines. 
Well, you know, I'm a bad person to ask about this because uh, I lived in an era, roundabout speaking, where uh, there was a real scourge at this time of year in many communities, and it was called polio. Okay? And uh, if you've ever seen someone who has been stricken with polio, uh, some people would die. The polio would attack uh, vital brain centers. Uh, some of us who are here today, we had a good friend in Loma Linda some years ago, uh, Milton Corwin. Some of you know Milton. I see some nods of recognition. And Milton was stricken with bulbar polio. He actually, his respiratory center was wiped out. Powerful man of God. That experience brought him to Jesus, and he was a tremendous influence uh, for many years in Loma Linda. But he had bulbar polio. That he, he had to consciously take every breath. What do you think happened at night? He had to be on a machine to breathe for him or he would die. So if you saw polio, as people saw up through the 50s in America, when the polio vaccine came out, how many mothers and fathers were saying, you know, this sounds like it's probably a bit risky and uh, I don't think we should uh, get a vaccine for our kids. Do you think that's what the attitude was? No, everybody was lined up for the polio vaccine. They're getting the polio vaccine. And uh, thousands of lives were saved. The interesting thing that happens in any community, just a brief public health perspective here for you, is that once you start using an effective vaccine, especially if it's a bad disease, the whole community benefits. We call it herd immunity. You see, because contagious diseases have to be passed from person to person to transmit it. So if, if everyone in a community is immunized but one person, are they going to get polio? No. And not least, those of you that know the history of polio vaccine, there was an oral vaccine that you could actually shed the polio virus in the, the stool and people could get it if they were unvaccinated. But that's kind of an exception. If you're vaccinating large groups of people, they're protected from these serious diseases. So here's what happens. Here's the interesting thing. If you go to a community that's not vaccinated and you're dealing with a serious, life-threatening disease, people, by and large, look at this as a tremendous blessing. But once you come to a community where there's herd immunity and no one has ever seen polio or measles or... Pertussis, I was going to use that example, but there's an outbreak of pertussis in California right now. Um, yeah, so people say, well, I don't need to be vaccinated. And in fact, on a certain level, the side effects of the vaccine for the average person, even though they might be very small and low risk, may actually be greater than the risk of contracting the disease. You, do you see what I'm saying? So if everyone's immune, but you, you say, why should I get the vaccine? I can't get it. Everybody around me is immunized. The problem becomes, though, when more and more people say, I don't need to get vaccinated because there's no, this disease, pertussis isn't here. I, I don't know anyone who had pertussis in California. Someone might have said five years ago. But now they're literally, it's, it's in the thousands, isn't it? Of people here in California that have had pertussis. 
And so they're saying, listen, when you get your tetanus booster, make sure you get a pertussis booster with it. And they're immunizing people who, uh, just to immunize them against pertussis today. So what's the answer to the question? The answer to the question is actually a complex one. I think you're picking up on this. And this is the same answer to most questions. It's a very profound answer. And if you pause, if someone says, you know, I have a question for you about this important medical issue, and I didn't do this, but if you want to be, you know, look very astute and very erudite, you simply say, you can repeat the question, rephrase it, and then you can give this profound answer. It depends. <laughs> it depends. And we laugh. But it's a very spiritual answer as well. You see, when I see a patient in my office, I typically cast a vision to them that I am merely a consultant and they are the expert. And this is my philosophy. After all, all of you in this room, no matter when we met, and I've known some of you for many years, but no matter when we met, you've lived with yourself a lot longer than I've ever known you. And if you come and see me in my office for the first time, I'll tell you that. I say, I'm just meeting you. And I might have memorized, I actually haven't, just put you at ease. If I were to have memorized all the medical textbooks and know every single contemporary medical article, I still would not know how a given vaccine or a given medication or a given procedure is going to be tolerated by your body. But the amazing thing is there is someone who actually knows the future. Who is it? Jesus. You see, as Christian lay members, as Christian health professionals, as Christian Bible workers, we have the privilege of becoming educated about subjects, whether it's vaccines or diet or natural remedies. And when we share with people, we can encourage them to go to the great physician and that he'll give you individual guidance about what you should do. But one of the most common things people call me about are things that there is not a black and white answer to. I can't tell someone that there is zero risk of side effects from any vaccine. But I can tell you in my own experience, having traveled internationally and uh, done a variety of things in populations that are at high risk for certain diseases, that I have routinely been immunized for many things, including hepatitis, uh, A and B, including uh, when I worked in intensive care units, I would always get the flu vaccine. Not because I was afraid I was going to get sick. Are you aware, I just should let you know, speaking about medical missionary work, are you aware that one of the greatest risks to patients in medical settings are the health care providers? There's a significant percentage of people who get inapparent infections when they're exposed to certain viruses like influenza. You say, I never get the flu, Dr. DeRose. Why should I get the immunization? Typically, the population I'm working with today is healthier. I don't get the flu shot. But when I was working in an intensive care environment, I would get the flu shot every year. Because if I was, I felt fine, perhaps. And I'm breathing out influenza viruses on the patient. And I don't know if you've ever done an ophthalmoscopic exam, you know, where you look in the person's eye with, I mean, you're a few inches from their nose. And I'm breathing right in their face. And so if they come down with influenza and they die, where did they get it from? Well, they didn't get it from me. I wasn't sick. Do you see, a lot of these issues are much more complex. What we want, Dr. Rose, yes or no? 
I know you weren't asking that way, but when I come to other settings where the people aren't, you know, they, they want to know yes or no. Is this good? Is this bad? Should we do this in our church? What should we be serving a potluck, Dr. DeRose? And what I'm trying to help you see is that God calls us to be part of a body. And we have this privilege of coming together, and it's amazing what happens when you work with a team. It's amazing. And I've been in churches, and I've been a member of a church, and I've even pastored in I was in a two-church district, and there were varying degrees of vision for health ministry in those two churches. But you know what? When you're doing things to bless people and help people, and you're not you know, your main job is not to tell people how bad they are, but it's to bless them, it's amazing what happens. It's just amazing. Okay, we've got uh, a little bit more time for interaction. One more question, then we're going to give you a short break and a chance to escape if it's getting too hot and you're going to pass out, and then we'll reconvene in a short while. So I know we could probably keep going without interruption, but we're going to do that anyway. I know this is a loaded question, but I'll ask it anyway for what it's worth. Where is our health system today compared to God's model for the Seventh-day Adventist Church? And as young people who are in the medical profession, where should we be fixing our eyes? Should we be happy to be mixed in with uh, just regular hospital work, or should we be focusing our attention and preparing for places like Weimar or other places like that? This is a very, very important question. And uh, actually, it's such an important question that since I promised you a break, um, we've got to give you the break right away because... Once we get into this, it may take the whole hour. Uh, no, don't get worried. Don't get worried. But we, are gonna, we, we need, do, do need to look at this in detail. Since the, your program sheet says we would break from 3.50 to 4, we are going to do that. My watch says it is 3.50 now. Okay? So we're going to dismiss with prayer, but we're going to reconvene right exactly at 4, and we're going to start with that question. If others of you have specific questions or things you want to share uh, and you don't want to mention them out loud, you can write them down. That lets me be more selective, though. So uh, let's just have a quick prayer together and thank the Lord for what he's doing. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you so much that, as I said many times, you're a God who's willing to be misunderstood. You love us that much. And we look at what's happened in the Adventist church, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about this tremendous message, this health message, that some people think the more they distance themselves from it, the more spiritual they are. Father, please help us. And please help us as we address this very important question about where we're at as a people and the importance for each one of us individually and in the local church. We thank you that we can look forward to doing that as we look to Jesus for the answers. In his name we pray, amen. <laughs>